Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Meshlove. Today we'll be exploring the noble lie revisited. I say revisited because my guest, Jason Reza Giorgiani, and I recorded an interview some time ago about Plato's noble lie, and we're revisiting that topic again. Dr. Giorgiani is a philosopher. He is the author of Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Lovers of Sophia, Novel Folklore and Iranian Leviathan. I might mention uh, also by way of introduction that we'll be touching on some issues related to the uh, political controversy and defamation surrounding Jason toward the end of this interview. For those of you who have uh, raised those issues, welcome, Jason. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure as always. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, I guess we could start by recapitulating briefly the, the concept of the noble lie, I, I guess, as uh, first expounded by Plato. So Plato uses the term noble lie um, in uh, Republic, in his great political uh, masterwork, The Republic. Uh, at 4.14 to 4.15 in that text, in the context of discussions about uh, eugenics um, uh, by means of arranged marriages. So, you know, he uh, proposes a, a lottery that would appear to be random, but would really combine uh, couples uh, in a way that would be favorable to eugenically enhancing the population. And um, this is where he uh, he first uses the term noble lie, but the noble lie plays a much more significant role in Republic uh, than simply in terms of this particular policy. Uh, another uh, more prominent example of it is uh, when Plato argues that the masses in any given society require some religion in order to uh, cultivate their moral character. And uh, he considers the uh, Homeric uh, folk religion of his time to have a deleterious effect on um, the uh, the upbringing of children. He thinks that uh, children being raised on on the Homeric epics uh, and the customary uh, sense of morals implicit in those uh, are being corrupted. Um, and uh, so he proposes that the guardians design a religion that would be more suitable to the cultivation of the ethical character of the population than the customary Greek religion, uh, but a faith that the guardians themselves do not believe in. Um, so this uh, proposal that the philosopher rulers of the ideal state ought to manufacture a religious doctrine that is false but conducive to the moral development of the majority of the population is another significant example of the noble lie in Republic. Republic isn't, however, the only Platonic text uh, uh, where uh, this idea of the, the noble lie emerges in some form. In Plato's seventh letter, uh, Plato comes out with the shocking statement that no one has ever studied the doctrine of Plato. And if they claim they have, they're lying. Um, and, you know, this is striking because uh, he's written tens of dialogues in which presumably he's expounded his doctrine. But uh, the implication of the statement is that all of Plato's writings are esoteric and that he has never revealed his actual uh, cosmology or political philosophy uh, in a direct fashion. Well, an esoteric culture itself existed long before Plato. Yeah, Plato's um, idea of the noble lie, I think, is rooted in the lesson he learned from the fate of the Pythagorean order, a secret society that he himself belonged to. Uh, Pythagoras was at the head of a very hierarchical, uh, elitist secret society, where even among those who belonged to the order, there was a distinction between an inner circle and an outer circle. Uh, the first uh, man behind the curtain was Pythagoras, who literally sat behind a veil, uh, where only his, his inner circle 
were at around his feet, and uh, the others had to listen to him lecture from behind this curtain. Uh, and then, if anyone were to reveal any of the secrets of the order to the public, the penalty was death. So the, the person who revealed the Pythagorean theorem, although that particular piece of information wasn't all that important, as a matter of principle, uh, was uh, sentenced to death. He was he was taken out by boat into shark-infested waters and thrown overboard by his brothers in the order. So you know, I mean, why was this degree of of, of secrecy uh, required in the in the Pythagorean order? Because it had a, a revolutionary program for um, the transformation of society. I mean, women were admitted, for example, into the Pythagorean order, very much against the conventional morality of the time. Uh, and the Pythagoreans were, and they they also believed in reincarnation, which was at odds with conventional Greek religion. The Pythagoreans uh, at the time were attempting to seize control of the government of Sicily and uh, they were positioning initiates of the order in, in high levels of the government. And when the, when the traditional aristocrats became aware of this, they uh, rallied the population against the Pythagoreans and, and staged basically a coup um, uh, that ended with the burning of the Pythagorean schools. Uh, and people speculate that either Pythagoras died in that fire or died shortly thereafter from his injuries in the, uh, in the fire. Uh, and so Plato, as a member of the Pythagorean order, is looking back on the destruction of the school and realizes that since he has to operate in the Athenian Agora, uh, since he has to, he doesn't have the protection of, of an order like, uh, like the Pythagorean schools when they were actually functioning, he has to write even more esoterically, express himself even more esoterically than the Pythagoreans did in order to uh, advance his uh, agenda. So uh, this tradition of secrecy can be found throughout, well, all secret societies uh, have it. And uh, secret societies are formed for many reasons, primarily political or uh, esoteric. And usually the esoteric societies do, like the Pythagorean order, have political overtones. Yes, and uh, although it's widely acknowledged that, that Plato... Um, believed in such secret societies, uh, having been a Pythagorean initiate himself, uh, it's less commonly accepted that Aristotle was also of the same view, that Aristotle also believed in uh, esoteric writing and in the need for secrecy as part of the philosophical project. Uh, but I would argue that, that he most definitely did. And one of my essays in Lovers of Sophia, one of the essays that uh, was collected into Lovers of Sophia, um, called Building the Theater of Being. I argue that Aristotle is extremely duplicitous, even when it comes to some of the most fundamental elements of his cosmology and his political philosophy. So, for example, Aristotle, uh, on the face of it, makes the statement that uh, human beings are not the highest beings in the cosmos, and that politics is not the most important matter. Uh, because, you know, the stars are made of the fifth element, and so they're more rarefied and of a higher order of being than uh, terrestrial humans. And uh, while man is a political animal, uh, and so politics is important for human life, since human beings are not the highest beings in the cosmos, cosmology or metaphysics is, is uh, more, uh, not, you know, even... A natural, what we now call natural philosophy, or what in the 17th century they called natural philosophy, is more important than politics. This is the conventionally accepted view uh, of Aristotle. But, in fact, if you read the Nicomachean Ethics and other texts closely, I think you come away with a, a very different impression. If you, you know, the devil's in the details. And when you look at the details of some of the remarks Aristotle makes, uh, particularly in Nicomachean Ethics, I think you arrive at a, a view uh, that's much closer to later idealism or to the hermetic idea of man as the microcosm of the divine, where um, Aristotle is supposed to have believed that God was the prime mover only in the sense that God gives purpose to all other purposes, that in the, the fourfold Aristotelian scheme of causality, where you have a material cause, uh, a formal cause, and then an efficient cause that shapes matter into a particular form, and then a final cause that's the end or aim, the purpose of something. Uh, God is that ultimate purpose that makes all other purposes objective. And God's essence is, is pure thought. 
right? But <clears throat> there are places where Aristotle admits that man shares the same essence with God. And if you start pulling on these threads in Aristotle's text, you realize that he, he actually is taking the view that uh, all of the four causes transform potentialities in nature into actual substances through human uh, intellectual and perceptive activity. So through human noesis, higher intellectual cognition, and through human perception, all of the other beings in nature gain their actuality from out of a matrix of potentiality. So this means that man is the microcosm of the divine, and without man, God couldn't actualize the cosmos. And God plays a much more active role through human noesis and aesthesis than Aristotle lets on, uh, on the face of his writing. Now this is, this gets back, gets us back to the noble lie when we consider uh, that remark again that man is a political animal. Because if in fact the actualization of nature is dependent on uh, the human mind, the way that later idealists believed. Um, and if, I, and if I, as I think is justified, Aristotle means it when he says that uh, the human being requires the polis in order to be fully human, and that uh, without a proper political system, human beings degenerate into a subhuman state, and it cannot really um, uh, fulfill their proper function, then really what Aristotle is saying is that Politics, or how to properly govern a city, is the master craft that allows being to manifest in the first place. That, in effect, the guardians of uh, the well-ordered city are also the guardians of um, uh, the coming into being of all, of all natural entities. Uh, and so this makes politics supremely important. And it, it becomes even more relevant to the noble lie when we consider that Aristotle drew a distinction, like Plato uh, and like the Pythagoreans, between various rungs of human beings, from those who are most materialistically oriented uh, uh, through, you know, the, 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 the common man who's uh, pursuing various business ventures and, you know, uh, diverts himself with entertainment together with others and at various occasions, all the way up to people whose entire lives are devoted to intellectual cultivation. And he claims that only those people, the people who live a life devoted to thinking, are really fit to govern the state because only they're capable of genuine friendships, friendships that are based on, on each other's character rather than on some shared business interest. And he goes so far as to say at one point in Nicomachean Ethics that such people uh, really do not need society's laws. They live above society and its laws and only outwardly need to adhere to them in order to set a good example for others. And so I think, uh, you know, when you look at these aspects of Aristotle's thought, you realize that even if he doesn't talk about the noble lie, he's practicing it, and he's practicing the doctrine of esoteric writing. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I think for many viewers, it would be surprising to think that Plato uh, advocated, uh, at least on some occasions, the application of the noble lie, since truth is considered uh, uh, primary. Truth, beauty, and goodness are his uh, three values, are they not? Sure, but Plato's view is that not everyone can handle the truth, and that if you want to aim most people toward the good, you're going to need to give them constructive myths. Mm -hmm. And would he place the good as being higher than truth? Uh, no, but I think that uh, I think there's there's an integral relationship between truth, beauty, and justice in Plato's uh, worldview. Um, but sometimes, uh, in order to have people cultivate their character and develop their intellect to the point where they're able to apprehend the truth, you need, for pedagogical purposes, including on a social level, to give them constructive myths that will uh, orient them away from wickedness and toward being closer to the good mm -hmm. and, and toward living more beautiful lives. So I, I gather that uh, this idea of uh, truth and the importance of it or the utility of a lie has been taken up throughout history by other philosophers as well. It, it has, it has. And before we go on to that, and, and in particular to the greatest student of the idea of the noble lie, which is Leo Strauss, I just want to mention that um, there's a film uh, called The Village, that is a really great example 
of what both Plato and Aristotle uh, mean by the noble lie. Um, it involves a, a group of intellectuals in the late 20th century um, who decide that society is simply too violent and uh, degenerate to be a place where children can properly be raised uh, and that, you know, the society is going to destroy the character of children. So they, they break away uh, from um, our civilization and uh, through, through, their, uh, through the role of a, a billionaire who's one, of this, uh, one, one amongst this group of intellectuals, they buy a, a large plot of land uh, that they fill with a forest and build a village in the midst of it. And, you know, this billionaire is able to prevent uh, airplanes and, and helicopters from even flying over. He establishes a no-fly zone over this whole area. And the uh, village is set up that, you know, basically rolls the clock back to the 1600s in terms of the level of technology. Um, so it's not like they have a religion that's similar to the, the fundamentalism of the Puritans. Uh, but they do have a religion that's been invented by the intellectuals who set up the society uh, for the moral betterment of the children who are raised in it, even though those who set up the society know that the religion is false. They, they, know, they know it to be false themselves and don't have faith in it. Uh, but they have faith in... in it's, they sincerely have faith in its constructive power to promote goodness. Mm. And so, uh, you know, this is, uh, I won't, you know, tell viewers how the story ends, but I'll point them toward that film as a great, a concrete example of what both Plato and Aristotle mean uh, by the noble lie in practice. And I gather the idea is that the uh, children raised in the village know no other reality. Yeah, and there's no crime. I mean, for, for a long time, there's no crime in that society. You know, people treat each other very well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I mean, I won't tell people how it ends. But No, it, I don't think it'll hurt to sp tell people the ending. I think it's crucial, actually. Well, the society kind of unravels because there is a, there is a, evidently the founders of the society didn't agree with Plato's advocacy of eugenics, uh, because there is a, um, a disabled, uh, child, a disabled adolescent in the village, uh, who, who winds up, uh, committing a violent crime and someone's very badly injured and there's need for medical assistance from outside the village. And the whole society starts to unravel from there, from, from that crisis taking place. So, in effect, one might say that uh, the moral lesson of, of the village is, is that the yeah, noble lie was misapplied or that it led to a bad ending one way or another. Either that or if you want to be a Platonist, you need to go all the way. Uh -huh. uh, you know, and anyway, let me not elaborate on that. But uh, someone who did go all the way as a Platonist was Leo Strauss. Mm -hmm. uh, Leo Strauss um, is considered, I think rightly, the uh, the most influential Platonist uh, in the contemporary epoch, at least when it comes to political philosophy, when it comes to elaborating uh, on Plato's political philosophy. He was a German Jew who escaped the, the rise of uh, Nazism uh, and uh, became a very influential professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, but before he relocated from Germany to the United States, Strauss was actually a, 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 an intellectual student of Martin Heidegger, um, and uh, literally a, a student of uh, Carl Schmitt, um, men who were uh, among the most prominent intellectuals who were also card-carrying members of the Nazi party. And uh, in fact, uh, Heidegger and Schmitt joined the party on the same day and they were standing in line together. At any rate, uh, Leo Strauss, in an essay called Introduction to Heideggerian Existentialism that appears in uh, his anthology um, on classical political rationalism, he claims that Heidegger is the only uh, living philosopher of our time, that, that the only real philosopher of our, meaning the 1950s, 60s, when he wrote that essay. Uh, Heidegger was the only person worthy of being called a philosopher, and Strauss said, you know, I myself am not a philosopher, I'm, I'm an interpreter of the history of philosophy and a political thinker. Mm. Um, so he had that degree of esteem for Heidegger, and and so I, you know, one, one, he's not the only one. I mean, Heidegger is almost universally regarded as certainly a great philosopher. Yeah, and so one would presume that Strauss was also influenced to some extent by Heidegger and yeah. Heidegger's reading of Plato and Aristotle. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 
he wrote extensive notes, uh, Strauss wrote extensive notes on Carl Schmitt's concept of the political, Carl Schmitt's most important text in political philosophy. Um, he wrote these extensive notes, which I think Schmitt really appreciated as maybe the, the most astute reflection of any of his students on the concept of the political. So uh, that's, that's uh, some of his background. Um, and, uh, you know, Leo Strauss also, I think, took Nietzsche very seriously. Uh, he wasn't just a student of Plato and Aristotle. I think he was also a student of Nietzsche and Nietzsche's critique of, um, Nietzsche's critique of moderns who rejected the idea of the noble lie. Uh, Nietzsche's critique of modern rationality. So Kant, for example, Immanuel Kant, in his essay on the supposed right to lie, um, which is often amalgamated with the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals when it's published, uh, Kant claims that it's never justified to tell a lie. Because, as he argues in the groundwork, the only actions that are ethical are ones that have a maxim that can be universalized. You know, uh, if your actions cannot be translated into some principle that everyone could universally adhere to mm -hmm. as a principle for their action, then uh, they're unethical. This is known, I think, as his categorical imperative. Yeah, the categorical imperative. In yeah. other words, um, and I see it really as a, a sophisticated, abstract reiteration of the do unto others uh, Christian morality. The golden rule. The golden rule, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, the idea is that uh, if, if the maxim of your action is uh, be kind to others, well, that's ethical because if it were universally implemented, it would be great for society. Mm -hmm. It would benefit everybody. But if you think that you're justified in stealing in some particular instance, well, the maxim of that action can't be universalized because if everyone were to steal, if everyone were to think that way, society would be torn apart. It would disintegrate. We'd have violent chaos. And um, so Nietzsche levels a critique at, at this. Uh, and let me just point out that, uh, in my view, this is so idiotic uh, that it would it would effectively be recommending that Nazis who come to the door of some good German citizen who's hiding Jews in his attic uh, ought to be led up the stairs to the attic and have the Jews handed over to them. You know, Kant would expect the the uh, good moral German who has the um, you know the uh, SS pounding on their door to say, well, look. Uh, I don't want to lie. I wouldn't want to be immoral by lying. But, you know, these people really haven't done anything wrong. I'll lead you up to them. And, you know, uh, but, but please be good to them because, you know, I, I think you're, you, you, you know, your whole approach to how these Jews should be treated is, is mistaken, uh, which I think is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly there are instances in which uh, lies are justified. Um, and so Nietzsche levels a very scathing critique at Kantian morality, uh, which includes uh, the argument that Kant is falsely assuming that everybody's equal. Uh, in, in the universality of the categorical imperative uh, of, of, you know, the golden rule, in effect, um, assumes falsely that everyone's equal and worthy of being treated equally. Mm. Whereas, you know, there are a lot of people who could pose very grave threats to society um, and need to be uh, handled in a way to minimize their potential damage. And it's, it's, uh, it's wrong to suggest that they should be accorded the same degree of respect or are owed the same honesty as very principled and, uh, you know, um, principled and reflective individuals. So Leo Strauss would agree with Nietzsche's critique of Kant. Yes. And so I think that although Strauss is widely characterized as a classicist, um, his reading of Plato and Aristotle are, uh, his reading of Plato and Aristotle is, if not fused with Nietzsche, uh, mediated through his understanding of Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. And now Strauss himself was also the uh, tutor to a whole generation of people at the University of Chicago who later became identified with uh, the neoconservative movement, uh, particularly under uh, George W. Bush and the uh, first Iraq war. 
That's right. And the uh, second, I should say. That's right. Paul Wolfowitz um, and and other key members of the Bush administration were students of, of Strauss's school. Um, and he uh, himself was what you might regard as a neoconservative thinker. Who? Uh, Leo Strauss. You know, I don't think that's fair to say, honestly. Uh, I right. think that that the man's um, genius as a political thinker transcends uh, the confines of any particular school of thought. It's often the case that schools of thought take shape around somebody whose um, who's, who's actual intellectual enterprise is much more sophisticated and insightful than what his students are able to understand from out of him. Okay. And, I, and I would say that about Leo Strauss. So his, my, his students are neoconservatives. His students, so he was an inspiration to that movement. Yeah. Uh, but what's ironic is, you know, some people also call, call that group of, uh, uh, of intellectuals classical liberals. Mm. Um, and I'll get into why momentarily. Uh, it has to do with the liberal ideology at the foundation of the United States and what Strauss had to say about that. He, he didn't uh, limit himself to lecturing on Plato and Aristotle. He also um, lectured and, and wrote extensively on the political philosophers who were foundational to the Constitution of the United States, uh, the, the political thinkers who were studied by the framers of the U.S. Constitution, the, the, you know, the books that were being read by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and so on and so forth, uh, like the works of Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, John Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in his book, uh, Natural Right and History, Strauss goes on at length about these uh, early modern political thinkers. And he claims that they also were employing esoteric writing, which was lost on a lot of their interpreters uh, and even on some of the framers of the Constitution. It, he finds evidence of esoteric writing in, in Hobbes and Rousseau and Locke. Um, which, you know, he believes they employed in order to avoid persecution because the church was still very powerful in the 1700s. And, and they were generally regarded, I believe, as the uh, Enlightenment rationalists. Yes. Uh, and there is a deist cosmology in the writings of some of these figures, particularly John Locke, that's adopted by uh, the framers of the Constitution, such as uh, Thomas Jefferson or the author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. And whether or not Jefferson realized this himself, the, uh, the belief that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights is based on a cosmology that is not defensible. It's not metaphysically defensible. Uh, it certainly can't be upheld after one uh, engages with the Darwinian theory of evolution in as serious a manner as Nietzsche did. And again, Strauss is a student of Nietzsche, not just of Plato and Aristotle. So Strauss comes to the realization in, in his writings on the American Constitution that the United States is founded on a lie. Uh, that, you know, the true Constitution of the United States, and here he's being a good student of Carl Schmitt, and of how Carl Schmitt understands sovereign order, and, and of what it really means to have a constitution. Strauss claims that the true constitution of the United States, the document that constitutes the country and reveals its existential foundation, is not the actual U.S. Constitution, it's the Declaration of Independence, which justifies the breakaway from Britain in the first place. And the Declaration of Independence is uh, woven around a lie. Uh, namely, that all men are created equal and endowed by some uh, grand architect of the universe with inalienable rights. And, and it was an obvious lie at the time because Jefferson and Madison and, and uh, other founders uh, established slavery. Well, see, I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, I really don't agree with that. I think that Thomas Jefferson, I mean, there were certain social and political realities of the time, mm-hmm. such as slavery. It was a deeply entrenched aspect of the economic system of the colonies. Yeah. And I, my reading of Thomas Jefferson as a human being mm-hmm. is that he was, he was basically against slavery and would like to have seen a society without slavery. But he considered it an idealistic goal. And like, like all people, he was imperfect and didn't live his life in an entirely consistent fashion and was subject to some degree of hypocrisy. But, but I do think that uh, you know, Jefferson, at least, I'm not as familiar with that. Jefferson would have, would have liked to get rid of slavery. Mm. So, look, I don't know, you know, whether Jefferson realized that he was 
uh, promulgating a noble lie when he used those words in the Declaration of Independence. But at this point, they are a noble lie. Sustaining that faith is, in fact, promulgating a noble lie. And Strauss thinks that it ought to be done because the United States of America is promoting a degree of freedom and a space for the cultivation of the individual, uh, including through its economic system, that uh, has never been on offer from any other society in history. Um, and uh, there are all these other uh, societies that could potentially threaten the human individual with terrible forms of tyranny. I mean, at the time Strauss was a professor at the University of Chicago, you had, uh, you know, uh, just barely coming out of the Stalinist phase of the Soviet Union. So you had uh, the, the tyranny of of, uh, of Soviet communism. You had uh, Chinese totalitarianism. And then ultimately, you know, I think the, the students of Leo Strauss wound up seeing Islamic fundamentalism as another source of, of tyranny, threatening the kind of freedom the United States was defending on a global and, scale. And Strauss himself had to flee Nazi Germany. Exactly. So Strauss thinks that even if the United States is founded on a lie, it's a beautiful lie. And this lie needs to be perpetuated in order to, practically speaking, continue to guarantee freedom for people in the face of concrete threats, mm -hmm. in the face of real enemies, existential enemies, mm -hmm. to use language from Carl Schmitt, who was Leo Strauss's teacher. Well, I, I can well imagine that a thinker like William James might look at that uh, statement in the you know, founding document and, and say, it may not be you know, provable in any sort of ontological or metaphysical sense that uh, all people are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. But from a pragmatic point of view, it's true because it works. Well, I, I think there's a lot of overlap uh, between William James and Nietzsche in that respect. Nietzsche often says very much the same thing that James does, or vice versa, mm -hmm. um, except that Nietzsche says it in a more provocative and uh, incendiary way. So um, the truth is what works, what's practically beneficial, um, is basically what Nietzsche meant when he said that over the course of history, the will to truth reverses itself uh, and reveals itself to be the will to power. Uh, Nietzsche, what Nietzsche means by the will to power is that pragmata is the ultimate, are the ultimate cr criterion. Uh, whether something, whether a belief, uh, whether a scientific paradigm, uh, affords us a greater latitude of action and is empowering and uh, fosters greater creativity should be the criterion on which, by which it's judged. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's, you know, effectively what William James is saying as well. So there is this, this parallel between James and Nietzsche. And anyway, now that I mentioned that, let me just elaborate briefly on uh, the will to truth. Um, you know, Nietzsche thinks that Plato's postulation of a transcendental realm as the, the ultimate standard of reality, of truth and objectivity, uh, eventually leads to uh, the, the decline of society into nihilism because it's recognized that this transcendental realm is hollow, that, that it's a, a posited, a projected ideal. Uh, and the, the effects of that are so demoralizing that uh, there's a reversal of the will to truth, and it's ultimately recognized that all of the expressions of the will to truth, including, including uh, the, the Judeo-Christian sense of morality and the doctrines of the church, are actually rationalizations of various uh, subconscious drives and uh, passions and uh, uh, deep, dark motivations in the recesses of the human mm -hmm. psyche. And this is where Nietzsche and Freud overlap to some extent. Well, a, a counter view might be that the experience of mystics, the experiences of, of people who have uh, had a near-death encounter, uh, affirm the existence of a transcendental realm. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with that at all. And I, and I argued that at length in Prometheus and Atlas, that actually uh, a, a thorough interpretation of 
the, the vast array of parapsychological evidence should complete the deconstruction of the idea of any objective reality. Uh, because what it does is it breaks down completely the distinction between the subjective and the objective. But that's a whole other discussion we could have. We could refer uh, viewers to our, in, our uh, conversation on the spectral revolution yeah. um, in that respect. Well, well, hopefully we'll have many future discussions, Jason, and that would be a good one. Yes. So, well, we definitely would do well to revisit that idea of the spectral revolution before long. Uh, in any case, um, Strauss, uh, I think, really bought this Nietzschean narrative about the reversal of the will to truth over the course of history and the recognition that uh, really what's being expressed is a will to power. And when we come up with, with new scientific paradigms and uh, subscribe to the, their uh, objective validity, what we're trying to do is empower ourselves by giving us a model that's going to uh, afford us the ability to develop types of technology that we haven't been able to thus far and types of technology that will give us more control over nature. Uh, just the same way that the doctrines of the church in the medieval period gave the church more control over the passions of the masses of people in society. Um, so I think it, this is this is a part of um, Strauss's uh, justification for the noble lie is a recognition that, you know, the truth is what is most useful and empowering. Mm. And if it's useful uh, to believe that all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights, um, uh, like th the right to freedom of conscience and freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and so on and so forth, uh, then the lie that makes makes the kind of society that honors those rights possible is a lie that ought to be promulgated. Well, it seems as if uh, Leo Strauss's students, the neoconservatives, uh, encouraged the uh, Second Gulf War uh, and, and based on the myth, the myth of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, presumably, they knew it was a myth. It's now well understood to have been an untruth. And uh, they must have felt that this this was a noble lie uh, in the, their pursuit of, uh, I guess, American hegemony in the Middle East. Uh, they may also have thought that provoking a civilizational war with the Islamic world would somehow uh, revitalize faith in the fundamental principles of America and the moral superiority of America on a global scale. That's also possible. It might not only have been about resource acquisition, but in any case, I consider it a despicable uh, misapplication of the idea of the noble lie and one that I very much doubt that Strauss would have endorsed. Uh, you know, this lie that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and that somehow Saddam Hussein had anything to do with Al-Qaeda when the Baathist uh, secular Arab ideology was diametrically opposed to, al to, to the uh, ideology of an organization, Al-Qaeda, which after all was created by the United States in Pakistan to be sent into Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a despicable misapplication of the idea of the noble lie. Um, and I want to give another political example, which is, uh, you know, um, uh, the uh, the disclosure movement and its relationship to the UFO cover-up and mm -hmm. look at the noble lie in that context. But on the way to that, I, I also do do want to uh, stick my neck out and address the truther movement briefly, since you brought up, you know, the, the, uh, the second Persian Gulf War. Uh, the war that, in effect, we're in still to this day as a result of the decision to uh, to tell these lies. Um, in that context, I want to say something about the truther movement because it defines itself as a movement for truth, namely the truth about what happened on 9-11. And, uh, you know, this is something I've looked into. I haven't talked about it, and I'm going to tell you why I haven't talked about it. Um, but I've looked into it. In particular, I would refer viewers to David Ray Griffin's research. He's a philosophy professor, uh, most well known for his elaboration of Whitehead's process thought. And he's done extensive research um, uh, as one of a, a group of scholars uh, who are seeking, you know, the truth about 9-11, quote unquote. And I find some of his arguments convincing, I'll admit publicly for the first time. Um, I think that uh, it's fairly obvious when you look at the evidence that those towers were brought down in a controlled demolition. And I'm inclined to think that a missile went into the Pentagon and not an aircraft. And that raises all kinds of disturbing questions. Okay. Uh, but 
Where this is most relevant to the, to the noble lie is this. If a conspiracy actually took place on 9-11, then that's being covered up by a lot more people than the ones who actually perpetrated the conspiracy. We have a vast national security apparatus, uh, many uh, uh, parts of which would have become aware of what happened on that day, uh, and that the publicly um, disseminated narrative is false. So then the question becomes, why are all of these people complicit in a potential lie? Uh, and is their complicity noble? Okay, are they, are they nobly uh, concealing the truth about what happened on 9-11? And I would suggest that it's possible that's the case, because it may not be that 9-11 was quote-unquote an inside job. Um, when, when you use the phrase 9-11 was an inside job, you're alleging the U.S. government attacked the United States. Well, what is the U.S. government? The U.S. government consists of, I don't know how many postal workers and people in every government agency, including the CIA, rank and file members of the CIA, who are sincerely uh, serving their country and, and making things work in a society that is freer than, than most other societies in the world. Um, and I think that it's a distinct possibility that some of these uh, respectable scholars for 9-11 Truth haven't considered that really what happened on 9-11 is that a group of people who for a very long time have penetrated and infiltrated various rungs of the United States uh, national security apparatus acted from within it to undermine this country and to ensnare us in a very long-term war, which we're still in today, uh, that, is, th that is potentially going to bring about the downfall of this country the way that the Soviet ad adventure in Afghanistan brought about the unraveling of the communist system and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And, and in fact, uh, before this interview gets aired, we will have already aired our conversation on the breakaway civilization. I can link to it now in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. Uh, if viewers of our current discussion want more background on that. That's what I'm alluding to, and that's also relevant to, to uh, where I wanted to end, end up here, which is a discussion of the disclosure movement, mm -hmm. um, because that's also a truther movement. It's also a movement uh, that insists on the morality of being as honest as possible and on having full disclosure, including with respect to the UFO phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And, and I would ask viewers to consider this, especially those of them who are more familiar with the, with the UFO phenomenon. Uh, there are abduction cases that involve the extraction of genetic material from people who have been uh, stolen away from their homes in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, hybrids that are being uh, engineered using this extracted genetic material, uh, you, you know, and to make a to make a long story short, uh, people are claiming abductees are claiming that they have children that they're separated from yes. that are um, that are hybrids of themselves and whatever these entities are, and just contemplate the horrendously unethical, uh, you know, um, the horrendously unethical behavior that's involved there on the part of these uh, technologically superior entities. Uh, consider also. Cases similar to the cattle mutilation type of case that's been studied for decades by Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe has done uh, decades of research on the cattle mutilation phenomena. And at least the, the earlier uh, cases of cattle mutilations can't be explained by laparoscopic surgery or any of the, the more recent medical techniques we've developed. And even considering those techniques, I mean, these things happen out in fields and, you know, in places where it would be impossible within the time frame involved to, you know, send some team of surgeons to do laparoscopic surgery. So I, I think that the cattle mutilation phenomenon is, is quite legitimate and she's demonstrated that very effectively. But there are cases of human mutilation that are similar to the cases of cattle mutilation. Um, uh, there's, there's a book, The Alien Menace, which uh, I think has a foreword by Jacques Vallée, where um, some cases of hu human mutilation that are identical to the, to the cattle mutilation type are, uh, are uh, detailed, and the coroner's reports, the autopsy reports, on the people who turn up mutilated in this fashion, uh, 
suggests that they were subjected to this treatment while they were still alive, because you can tell from the reaction of tissue, you know, whether someone, uh, whether, whether certain wounds are inflicted on a person while they're alive or not. And you can also tell from the adrenaline content uh, in the cadaver. Uh, so, you know, there are cases where people were were horribly mutilated while still alive. They were drowned in salt water, uh, at which point they they uh, suffocated, and then their bodies were dropped down onto rooftops to be discovered uh, and taken to coroners. What sane government, who was aware of this kind of data in relation to UFOs, would uh, come out and tell the public that you know, there are technological, technologically superior entities that are capable of stealing you and your children away in the middle of the night and horribly mutilating them. And there's no way that we can protect you or your property or guarantee you any of the securities that you're supposed to have as a tax-paying citizen. No president of the United States should be expected to come out and make a statement like that until and unless uh, we have the capability to defend ourselves against that kind of a threat. So I think that there's a good argument, and you know, recently, uh, in relation to these reports of the, the Tic Tac UFOs that were sighted by um, uh, U.S. naval vessels and U U.S. naval pilots, the U.S. Navy came under pressure to release uh, its files on these, you know, encounters with these Tic Tac UFOs to, to you know, uh, to... Uh, uh, engage in full disclosure on the subject. And they said that if they were to do so, it would pose, quote, a grave threat to national security, unquote. So what is it that they know about the UFO phenomenon? Uh, is it that they are aware of these cases of human mutilations? Is it that the hybrid phenomenon is real? So, so I think that, you know, one needs to look at the idea of the noble lie in this context as well. I mean, a, a perfect example of a lie that might be noble is the UFO cover-up. Until, uh, until and unless the United States, or for that matter, any other government, has the capability to defend the denizens of Earth from whoever is perpetrating these crimes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, very thought-provoking, and I think uh, as I promised our viewers at the beginning, I, I want to, uh, with this context now, to, to look at some of the uh, issues that have been raised by viewers in response to your recent book, uh, Iranian Leviathan, and your potential application of, of the noble lie in, in your work in behalf of uh, the Iranian Renaissance organization that you were once affiliated with and uh, uh, Iranian politics in general. Sure. So let's go into that. Okay. I'll let you uh, start. Well, do you have any particular well, angle? Well, okay, yes. Say? Specifically, it, w it was brought to my attention in, in the book, Jason, that there's a, a point at which you argued that uh, the Iranian people should be free to uh, engage in uh, genetic engineering and remove Turkish and Mongol genes from amongst the population. And, and I have to tell you, and, and I've told you right away, as soon as I learned of it, that I found that offensive. Okay, so... Uh, before I substantively address this issue, let yeah. me just make a very specific remark about eugenic applications of biotechnology. Mm -hmm. uh, my view on that, whether it's in Iran or in America, mm -hmm. is that um, a wide range of uses of, uh, of biotechnology should be permitted to individuals, uh, including for the sake of enhancement, enhancement of intelligence. Yeah. And uh, so... I'm an advocate of the use of, of a eugenic uh, or but eugenic use of emerging biotechnologies like genetic engineering and embryo selection in Iran or, for that matter, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Let me come and to the I question of quarrel with you there. Either. Yeah. So, well, but, but here's the thing. So, it may be the case that so you, uh, you're less familiar with the Iranian sociopolitical atmosphere, and when the Turks and the Mongols came to Iran, they genocided about half of the Iranian population taken together. Mm. They committed uh, horrendous atrocities. I mean, head, uh, pillars of heads piled up in cities like Esfahan by uh, Tamerlane. Mm. Um, they, they raped many, many Iranian women uh, and decimated particularly the, the intellectual elite of the country that resisted them. Mm. So uh, I think it's legitimate to argue, I mean, especially since this came on the tail end of uh, uh, the uh, zenith of um, 
the flourishing of Iranian arts and sciences, uh, what's commonly referred to as the Islamic Golden Age, which was mostly based in, in Iran, which uh, consisted about 90% of Persian uh, scientists, was brought to an end by the Turkic and Mongol conquests of Iran. I mean, that is a historical fact, that that period ended when those conquests took place. And uh, so the intellectual elite of the country was decimated by illiterate, uh, nomads who came from out of Central Asia and who behaved in an incredibly violent fashion yeah. uh, and devastated what had been a very harmonious and um, a society that was progressive both in terms of science as well as uh, the humanities, as well as arts and literature. That's, a, that's I think, a, a pretty solid historical fact that I, uh, that I point out in, in Iranian Leviathan. So, you know, the, the Iranian population might opt to get rid of genes that are that are uh, associated with the Turkic and, and Mongol genetic um, stock, because they they may see them as um, they may see them as traces, reminders of this genocide that was perpetrated against the Iranian people. Uh, I mean, that's I think very understandable psychological reaction uh, on the part of uh, a population, okay, yeah, right? And, and uh, uh, so it, it, it's not, I'm not getting this idea out of nowhere. If you, yeah. if you allow, uh, eugenic uses of emergent bio, biotechnologies in Iran, there would be a whole host of people who would want to, uh, remove the genes of populations that had committed genocide against the Iranian people, whether they're Turks, uh, Mongols or Arabs. Well, I think it's fair to say that much of the world harbors racist ideologies. Yes, but let me, let me say something in that respect. Yeah. Um, in the Iranian uh, nationalist movement, mm -hmm. which I operated in at the highest level for quite a while, uh, there's a racist sentiment that is as severe as what you saw in 1930s Germany or you know, 1920s Italy. And my concern when I was composing Iranian Leviathan as, as a monumental history of Iranian civilization was to uh, prevent these racist impulses from resulting in the worst geopolitical uh, consequences that are imaginable in our, in our contemporary epoch. Uh, so what you see in the Iranian nationalist community is a rabid hatred of Arabs for having brought Islam to Iran. And anti-Arab ethnic sentiments, uh, the, the, the hostility toward the Arab ethnicity is conflated with opposition to Islam as a religious ideology. They're thoroughly conflated. Even if in public statements, Various Iranian nationalists will say, you know, we're not, we have no problem with Arabs. We just have a problem with Islam as an ideology. That's not the case. Uh, they blame the Arab race for destroying Iran through the Islamic conquest. And there's a very real danger I saw when I was involved in this community, uh, that there's a very real danger that if a nationalist movement seizes control in Iran, even if some of the initial leaders of that movement are relatively well-meaning and reasonable people, they will lose control of the situation uh, by promulgating a narrative that is diametrically opposed to Islam and considers it a totally destructive force in Iranian history. They will, even if inadvertently, unleash a race war against the Arabs. Uh, I think you'll, you will see... Um, a situation where Iran will find itself pitted against 20 Arab countries. Uh, by comparison today, to today, when Iran has a, has a very, uh, uh, wide reach through the Sunni, I mean, through the Shiite Arab world in places like Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon and Yemen, you'll see an Iran that's not only isolated from the entire Arab world, but that is on the verge of a, a horrific ethnic conflict with the Arab world. Because a narrative would be promulgated that um, Islam is an Arab religion that led to the catastrophic destruction of Iranian civilization. Okay, to the terminal decline of Iranian civilization. Uh, and the Arabs are going to be held racially responsible for this. So, I tried to tell a story about Iranian history that shifted the, the blame for Iran's uh, civilizational decline from the Arab Muslims 
to the Turks and the Mongols. Because anyone uh, aiming at a, a, a sound strategic analysis of that part of the world would realize that there is no possibility for war between Iranians and Turks. Whether the Turks of Turkey or the Turks of Central Asia, uh, th these are not strategic enemies of Iran. There are not uh, scenarios that you can game out where Iran is going to wind up at war with the Turks of Uzbekistan or, you know, uh, let alone Turkey itself. Uh, and then forget Mongolia. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that uh, simply because the Iranians consider Mongols responsible for the decline of their civilization, there's going to be a war with Mongolia. It's absurd. Okay, so in my narrative in Iranian Leviathan, I shifted the emphasis on uh, onto the Turkic and Mongol genocides. Uh, of Iran rather than the Arab-Muslim onslaught uh, because there's no possibility that that narrative can translate into a regional war uh, that, that's a, a, a racial war between, you know, uh, Iranians and Turks and Iranians and um, uh, Mongols. But there's a very real possibility that a neo-Zoroastrian revival movement that's radically anti-Arab will eventually result in a, in a Persian-Arab race war that will either uh, end in the physical destruction of Iran, because Iran is surrounded by 20 uh, Arab countries, or it will end in the moral destruction of Iran, uh, a situation where Iran proves militarily capable of defeating all of these Arabs taken together, but has to do th so through, say, a nuclear war, through some kind of a nuclear holocaust. And, uh, you know, that is not, that should not be the opening chapter of the story of an Iranian renaissance. Uh, an Iranian renaissance that begins with a, a uh, uh, puritanical Zoroastrian state in a genocidal war with Arab Muslims uh, that it considers responsible for the decline and fall of Iranian civilization it is not going to set the kind of example to the rest of humanity that um, an Iranian renaissance should. Mm -hmm. So, in effect, it, I guess it might be fair to say that your involvement at that time and in, in the uh, Iranian renaissance organization and that movement was an effort to... Uh, assume a leadership role in the movement for the purpose of guiding it uh, in a different direction. That's right. It, it's exactly what I tried to do with the alt-right. Yeah. And uh, because at this point, when this video is released, we will have also released a, a video giving more details about your involvement in the alt-right. And, and once again, it was uh, an effort on your part to assume leadership in a movement to guide it in a different direction. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't generally apologize for anything, but, you know, let me take the opportunity to apologize to any Turks who may have been offended by that. Because the fact of the matter is that I have absolutely no negative sentiment toward Turks. And in actuality, had I been able to attain some prominent position of influence in Iran's political future, I'd have probably proposed a deep strategic alliance with Turkey. Uh, I mean, I have a vision, I ha have had a vision in the back of my mind for some time of a kind of Treaty of Tabriz, um, of a far-reaching NATO-type strategic alliance between Iran and Turkey that would involve the Persianate world, uh, like Afghanistan and Tajikistan and Kurdistan, Ira Iraqi Kurdistan, as well as the Turkic parts of Central Asia. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tabriz being a city where there are many Turkic speakers, um, a city uh, where, you know, Rumi lived for some time, who's widely revered in Turkey, uh, and a city that's been central to Iranian history and the capital of Iran for some time, would be the perfect uh, symbol or, or, or emblem for such a treaty, the Treaty of Tabriz. And my grandfather also spent a lot of his time in Tabriz, setting up the literature department of the University of Tabriz. So this is a vision I've had in the back of my mind, and, you know, I, I have nothing against Turks. Uh, and I have nothing against any group of uh, people, you know, on an ethnic basis. I don't have the, you know, I don't have a, you know, trace of racism anywhere in my being. Uh, other than my fiancé, my best friend is a black man. Um, so, you know, it, the, the people who've leveled these allegations against me haven't read my work in any depth, and they have zero understanding of my character uh, or, or how I actually conduct my life. 
Well, maybe that's a good note to end on, Jason. Uh, I can just say, you know, I've known you for quite a few years. I consider you a friend. Uh, and I expect to have you uh, back on New Thinking Aloud many, many more times. As as far as I'm concerned, you you have been uh, misunderstood and and mislabeled. And I know people point to all kinds of snips and snatches of statements you've made elsewhere, never on this channel, uh, uh, to justify uh, their uh, projection. Uh, of you as, as some kind of a nefarious individual. And as far as I'm concerned, I see just the opposite. I, I see somebody with a good heart. Thank you, Jeffrey. And uh, I uh, welcome you into my home and, and will continue to do that, uh, I would say, uh, probably as long as we're both alive together. Yeah, I mean, if people want to know who I am, you know, they should ask him and they should ask uh, people like like Selwyn Griffith, uh, to whom I dedicated Lovers of Sophia. These are the kind of people uh, who really know me and who've been uh, a part of my life in a personal way. Well, thank you once again, Jason, for opening up about these difficult issues. I know that the uh, pressure on you and the accusations pointed at you have, have made your life very difficult. So I'm grateful that you're able to be with me. And I'm grateful for your support, Jeffrey, as always. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.